If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 16 through 20 and follow along as I read. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater work than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. This is the word of the Lord. The title of our message this morning is, Follow in His Footsteps. And the reason for this title is because John begins his gospel in John chapter 1, in verse 43, when he leaves for Galilee, and upon arriving in Galilee, he finds Philip. And when he finds Philip, he issues Philip one command with two words. He simply commands Philip, follow me. When he chose his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. He told them to leave their nets, and he said, follow me. Christ is calling out men and women during his earthly ministry to follow him, not only to receive his teachings, but to follow his teachings and to follow his example. And so I'm convinced in the passage that we read this morning, it is not just simply something that we are historically looking at and just dissecting and studying, but it is An example that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the penmanship of John, to help us understand exactly how Christ walked, how he lived, and how he served. He does that because he wants us to be able to follow in the footprints of Christ. Christ leaves us in the four Gospels some very clear and very distinct footprints that he wants us to follow, to emulate his example as we study his life and his ministry and how he lived his life. And so as we take a look at this passage, I want us to sort of look at it in fresh eyes today, if you've ever read it before, with the idea that Christ has left us an example in which he he wants us to emulate, to follow, to replicate in our lives as well. In other words, he wants us, as Christ did, to make his journey, to make his walk, to live his life, to engage in ministry as he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, Judea, and all of the places he went in Galilee. Christ was constantly observing and watching where God was at work. And then Christ stepped into the activity of God the Father and joined God in what God was doing. That's how he operated. That's how he lived. That's how he ministered. That's how he served the people that God called him to proclaim the gospel to. He was constantly attentive to the activity of God. He was available to what God was doing. He was abandoned to the activity of God. And as a result of that, he could be assured of God doing great things through their partnership and their collaboration together and all the miracles and all the teaching and all the things that he did throughout his earthly ministry. And so I want us to take a look at this gospel and in this light and follow in the example that Christ is laying for us 
so that we might emulate, we might follow that example so that we can enjoy the activity of God as we step into that activity and join God in what God is doing. The fact of the matter is that God is constantly and continuously at work all around us. He's at work in your life, in my life, in our life, in this church, in this community. He is constantly at work. And in that activity, he is inviting us, as he did Christ, to step into that activity and join him in what he is doing. So sort of to lay a foundation, to sort of uh, help us understand why this dialogue is taking place, beginning with verse 16, I think it's important for us to go back to John chapter 5, verse 1, and sort of recap what brings us to where we are. If you go to John 5, verse 1, you see where Jesus and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem. They choose to go into the city of Jerusalem through the sheep gate. It's not a coincidence that the Lamb of God goes through the sheep gate as he enters into Jerusalem. It's not hard to apply that to Christ himself, who was the Lamb of God. And so as the Lamb of God, he chooses the sheep gate, he enters into that sheep gate, and that sheep gate, as he enters into that path that takes him to the temple, will take him by the pool of Bethesda, where John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us understand that there are five beautiful colonnades that are designed to give shelter and to protect from the sun those who gather around the pool for whatever reason. And John instructs us that as Jesus is making his way by that pool, there is a multitude of people that have gathered there not just for the moment, but they have been there for quite some time. You see, they're invalid, they're lame, they're diseased, and they believe somehow in the superstition that when the finger of an angel or the finger of God stirs the water, the first one in the water will receive a miracle. They will be healed. It's not scriptural. That's not reality. It's a superstition. And so because they believe it, there have been a large number of people. John simply says that it's a multitude of people who have gathered there. It sounds like a pastor, doesn't it? How many were there on Sunday morning? A multitude, right? Just a multitude, a lot of people, maybe too many to count. And so he goes by this pool and he notices this beautiful colonnade with this beautiful pool. Architecturally, it was designed, I think, to be something to behold. But because of all these invalid people who believed in this superstition, who had been there a long time, were gathered there. As he passes by, he sees one man, one man out of the multitude captures his attention. And the reason why is because this is the moment for this man's miracle. And Christ looks at him, and he knows, John informs us, that this man has been an invalid for 38 years, and that he has been by this pool for a long time. He doesn't define what long is, he just simply says a long time. Now, if you can imagine, you have been to all the doctors, you've been to all the physicians, you have taken all the medication, you've gone to all the experts and all the scientists and read all the books, and you have come to the, realize that the only way you're going to receive a healing is through a miraculous intervention from God, and that miraculous intervention from God is possible by the pool of Bethesda when the finger of God stirs the water. If you get in it first, you'll be healed. Imagine how long this man has been there, a long time, believing somehow that he is, his miracle is just in the pool. And so Christ walks by, sees the man, looks at the man, and says to him, ask him a question. He says, would you like to be healed? Now, on the surface, that seems kind of a strange question, doesn't it? A man who has been in this condition for 38 years, been by the pool of Bethesda, waiting for the moment of his miracle for a long time, Jesus comes by and asks him, would you like to be healed? That would 
you know, be a no-brainer, right? But the reason I think it's an important question is because there are a lot of people who like their infirmities. They like their condition. They don't want it to change. In other words, change brings about difference, and they have learned to become so accustomed and so complacent with where they are, anything that would change their condition to something else brings them into a new reality. They're not aware, not aware of what that might bring, so they choose to rather stay where they are. For example, anybody know anybody in here when you ask them, how you doing, and they give you a long list of infirmities? Anybody know anybody like that? If you don't know anybody like that, you're probably that person. Okay? And so this guy is asked a very important question. Do you want to be healed? He responds to Christ by simply saying, yes, I want to be healed. But the problem is every time the water is stirred by God, I don't have anyone there to help me get to the pool first. In other words, I need help getting to the pool. I need help for someone to save me to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. And so Christ then, with incredible compassion, looks at the man and says with incredible authority, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And he says it with such compassion and with such conviction and with such authority, the man is instantly healed. He jumps to his feet, rolls up his bed, and begins walking, I believe, toward the temple to give honor and glory and praise to God for his healing, for his miracle. And on his way to the temple, or maybe as he gets to the temple door, he is greeted by maybe a greeter, and this Jew, this zealot, this legalist, turns to the man and said, did you not know, sir, that it is unlawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath? The man looks at him and said, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is I was at the pool for 38 years. I was... uh, needing a miracle, this man came by and told me to rise, pick up my bed, and walk, and he said it was his authority. I believed him. I was healed, and I did it, and and I'm carrying my bed now because he told me to. The guy then asked, well, what's his name? The man doesn't know his name and confesses, I don't know who it is that healed me because, you see, there was something, John informs us, there was such a crowd there that Jesus withdraws without identifying himself and taking time to explain who did this and why it happened because of the multitude is there. And if you can imagine, if you were there and you had been waiting next to this man for a long time, waiting for the moment of your miracle, and he was healed by Jesus, and you witnessed that, what would you want? I'm next. But you see, this was the moment for this man's miracle and no one else's. It was not time for the others. And who of us have not been in a place, in a point, in a circumstance or situation in our lives where we have seen God do incredible things for other people and we've been waiting for God to do for us what we need to be done, right? And so he, he, he steps off the scene. He doesn't take time to explain to the man his name and who he is and what he came to do. John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us understand that Christ makes his way to the temple, finds the man, and he has a conversation with the man. And I believe not recorded the conversation for us to understand it completely everything that was said but because of what Christ said to the man he said see see you are well go and sin no more so that nothing else may happen to you worse than that I'm convinced by that he not only received physical healing but he received spiritual healing because he received forgiveness for his sin now could it be possible this man became a Christ follower a disciple of Jesus 
I think he was so excited that he found out who it was that healed him. That he ran, John tells us in verse 15, to seek out those Jews who were wanting to know who it was that had told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. And he finds them and he says to the men, he says, the man who healed me was Jesus. Notice the response. He didn't say to the men, the man that told me to carry my bed on the Sabbath to break your religious traditions told me his name is Jesus. That's not who he was talking about. He said the man that healed me. He talked to them in regard to the healing, not to the carrying or the disobedience to the religious tradition. That's what helps me believe that he was testifying then of the miracle that Christ had brought into his life through the physical, if not spiritual, healing, thinking maybe they too want to follow Christ, but they don't. And it's here that we then begin our conversation between Jesus and these religious elite. These religious elite in John chapter 5, verse 16, are coming toward Christ. And we see as they approach Christ the first of our four points. The first one is that if we, like Christ, want to join the activity of God, we must be attentive to God's activity. For Christ was attentive when God was at work. He was aware when God was working. Notice in the text in verse 16. Let's look at the Bible and the text that was read earlier. Verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Here, John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, defines and describes for us the approach of these religious elite, these religious leaders, these enforcers of the law, to engage in an inquisition where they are going to put, really, Christ on trial. And he describes the people in this approach as simply Jews. They're not just simple Jews, but they are people who are serious about their faith and the keeping of the law and the traditions that they have added to the law. You see, the law of God and their traditions are equally important, and they are upset. These people, notice, are upset, and because they're upset, their purpose isn't to find out who Jesus is and what he has to say or what he has to bring, but their purpose is to persecute him, to hurt him, to harm him, to harass him. They're not interested in him as a person or what he has done to this man or the miracle that he has performed. All they want to do is to persecute Christ, and they're approaching Christ for the purpose of persecuting him. Why? Because it says he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What things? Could it be the possible miracle that he did at the Pool of Bethesda on the Saturday? Would it be unlawful for them, for him, to heal someone on the Sabbath? Yes. But they were more interested in the unlawful act, the tradition breaking of carrying the bed on the Sabbath not in the miracle that was performed. And so they're approaching Christ. Interesting that John doesn't record any conversation between them and Christ before Christ says something to them. I wonder why that is. I think it's because God knows what we think even before we say it. He knows what we feel even before we can articulate it. Christ many times encountered people in advance who needed to say nothing before he could speak to them and to their need or their concern. So Christ then answers their concern. They're approaching Christ. They don't say anything, but Christ speaks first. 
Notice he answers them, my father is working until now. My father is working until now. Christ answers their concern by simply saying, my father is working until now. Don't you wish that God could answer all your concerns? Come on, right? Let me have a nod or two out there. Come on, right? Don't you have some things that you'd say, hey, I got a concern. Can you answer my concern? And sometimes, most of the time, he doesn't answer any of my concerns, much less one of them. But here he's answering their concern by simply saying, my father. He is answering their concern by, by pointing out his personal relationship with God as father. My father. My is a personal pronoun. He is saying that God is his father. He is my father. There is an intimate, personal love relationship with Christ and his father. You see, I think sometimes we are not attentive to the activity of God is because our relationship with God isn't as intimate and as close as it needs to be. I think the intimacy that Christ had with the Father enabled him to be attentive to the activity of God all the time. And when I am not actively aware and attentive to the activity of God is an indication on my part, not his part, that I am not as close, intimate in relationship with him as I ought to be. Isn't it true that when I distance myself from the Father, it's hard for me to be aware of how he is working and what his activity is about? And so he says, my Father... But notice he says the word is working. That is a continual present moment, meaning that God is continually, constantly at work. He is telling them the reason why I healed the man at the pool of Bethesda is because God was at work in that pool. God is not only, was not only at work at that man's life for 38 years during his infirmity, but he was also at work at that moment in my encounter with him at the pool, and he's at work right now. You know, I think sometimes we, like the man at the pool, wonder, Lord, I've been in this condition for 38 years. Are you aware of my condition? Are you at work here at all? And yet, throughout the 38 years that man was in his condition, God was at work. And maybe may, may have times where he didn't recognize that. Maybe he didn't understand that. Maybe he didn't know that. He didn't see that, much, like, much less want that. But in the man's life throughout 38 years, he was constantly, continually at work even into the moment of the miracle, even in the moment of the encounter with the Jews who were questioning about what he was doing, to the very moment that they were engaged in right now between these people who wanted to persecute him. He says, my father is working, notice the words though, until now. That's incredible. John says that through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he has not only continuously worked, but he's working even right now. Remember, why were these guys there? They were not there to know Christ, to receive Christ, to follow Christ. They were there to persecute Christ. And Christ was aware that even in the moment of persecution, his father was constantly, continually at work. You see, I think sometimes we're not attentive to the activity of God because we think God can't work in difficult times. Or that God maybe is sort of an absentee landlord when I'm going through troubled days or financial pressures or marital problems or child sickness, finances, whatever it may be. 
You see, we, we see and we glorify God in the good things. And we say, yes, Lord, I see you at work here because something great's happening. But how about when things are not quite going the way we had hoped or we like or we anticipate? The fact of the matter is God's at work all the time. Christ knew that God was at work not only in this moment, but all the way up to the moment in which he died on the cross for your sin and my sin against the Father. And God is continuing at work. And Christ understood that. He was attentive to the activity of God. He's aware of the activity of God. And I wonder how often you and I are not aware or attentive to God's activity. There are times and there are moments, I don't know about you, but let me tell you about me. Sometimes I go around like this. I got tunnel vision. Because God, you can only work as I think you can work, or as I want you to work, or as I expect you to work. The reality is, often he works like this, not like this. I don't know about you, but I'm Baptist. I know you don't have Baptists in your name, but most of you grew up Baptist, right? Or some of you did. We Baptists have a tendency to put God in a box and think that God can only work this way. But the reality is, God often doesn't work the way I anticipate, expect, desire, or want him to work. And I am very thankful for that because his ways are better than my ways and his thoughts are better than my thoughts. I think sometimes you and I walk around in life like this. You ever done that? Just close your eyes because you don't want to see where God is at work. You don't want to acknowledge where God is at work. Life is hard. Things are tough. I don't understand. I don't comprehend. And so we just shut our eyes and just ignore the activity of God. It's important for us to be attentive as Christ was to the activity of God and not put God in these limiting, limiting boundaries that we put him in, these perspectives that we often have. And I'm not saying he doesn't, he, he doesn't operate outside of scripture, but often our understanding of how God operates is very small, isn't it? So Christ was attentive to the activity of God. Secondly, he was available to the activity of God in verse 17, the second part of that verse. Jesus said, my father is working until now, but notice the second part of the verse. He says, and I am working. And I is one word in the original language. It is a conjunction in which Jesus is linking what he has said to what he's about to say. He said, because God is constantly continually at work, I too am constantly continually working alongside with in collaboration with God the Father. When God works, I work. What he does, I do. When he moves, I move. What he says, I say. I don't know about you, but I wish I was more like that. How about you? He says, I, and then he says, am working. That word working is the same word that is used to describe for the activity of God. And what Jesus is saying here is the same work that God is doing, exerting himself in an act, in a process, intentionally accomplishing an objective or a purpose. When God intentionally, purposefully does something, I join God. Did you know that God is an intentional God? Did you know that God never says, oops, I didn't see that coming? Or I didn't mean for that to happen? We do that all the time, don't we? God doesn't ever do that. He is an intentional, sovereign God. 
And no one can thwart his purposes, and all of God's purposes are with intentionality, for all things will eventually work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He was available to what God was doing. These religious elite were not. We know that by verse 18. Notice in verse 18 he says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Christ offers an explanation, and I am working, and then they have an objective, though, to Christ's response. They are not only wanting to persecute him, they are escalating now their persecution because here in this text, John helps us understand that their persecution now has come to execution. They're wanting to eliminate him. Their purpose is to kill him, to physically put him to death and eliminate his influence on the people. But notice, why were they they objecting to Christ? It says here, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They assessed, and they came to the understanding that Christ was committing sin. As they identified not only the laws of the Lord, but also the traditions that they had made up because of the laws to enforce the law. They believed that Christ was committing sin, but Christ did not commit sin, for if he had committed sin, he would not have been able to be the perfect sinless sacrifice to die on a cross for our sin against God. He would have died for his sin, not for yours and for mine, who place faith in him, for by grace through faith we are saved. He did not commit sin. He broke their traditions, but he didn't commit violate God's law. God himself would never violate his own law. And Christ was obedient to the Lord, to his God, to his Father. So no, he wasn't committing sin, but they believed it. But it wasn't true. Not only did they believe that he was committing sin, they believed that he was claiming divinity. Of course he was. That was true. Because it said that he was even calling, his, calling God his own Father. We know, because we celebrated Christmas a few months ago, that he was, in fact, the Son of God. We study during Christmas how the virgin, her name was Mary, through a means of supernatural in vitro fertilization, was with child, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and that was within her was both God and man, and he was fully God and fully man. He did not have an earthly father, and as a result of that, he was who he claimed to be. He was God's son, but not only were they upset because he was claiming divinity, but he was also considered himself equal with God because it said here he was making himself equal with God. Well, of course he's equal with God because he's God's son. He is equal with God in his character, in his attributes, and in his nature. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is like his father in every way. Probably shouldn't say this, I'm going to say him anyway, I'll probably get back to Matt, but If you watch Matthew, our oldest son, walk from behind, he walks just like his dad. That's not a good thing, okay? Why does he walk like me? Because he's my son. It's just a natural thing. Children become like their parents. The older I get, the more I think I'm becoming like my father. Some of that's great, some of it's not so great. But Christ was becoming and is totally and completely like his father who is perfect in every way in character, in nature, and in his attributes. And so 
what I want to point out in this text is simply this, that they were not available to Jesus Christ in his claims. They were rejecting, resisting, and refusing to embrace Christ because he didn't fit their concepts or their understandings about the future or the promised Messiah. He was not the, the Messiah they had anticipated or expected to come, and so they were rejecting Christ. They're not available to him. I think sometimes if you and I are not careful, we're not available to the activity of God as well because of our own presuppositions, our own lack of understanding, our own stubbornness, our own inability to receive what God has put before us as his activity. And he's saying, this is what I am doing. Do you perceive it? And we have to come to terms like Christ did. Yes, when he passed by the pool of Bethesda, he saw that man sitting in that pool. And he simply stepped into the activity of God and joined God. He didn't question it. That was the moment for this man's miracle, and Christ was going to step into that activity for that moment, for that man in that miracle. And I wonder how many things we pass up in our day-to-day lives because God reveals to us exactly what he's doing, but we're simply not available to stepping into what he's doing and joining God in that activity. Thirdly, he was abandoned to the Father's activity. He was attentive, and he was available, and he was abandoned to the Father's activity. I watched one of your sermons the other day, and one of you guys said you had, I think it was your you, you said three points that are alliterated, and the fourth was not. Wasn't that you? I got four four alliterated points, just want to let you know. Uh, He was abandoned to the Father's activity. See, I have watched some uh, stuff on your church, so it was a good message, by the way. Yeah, who knows? Worship guys can preach. Oh, my son's doing that, right? Never mind. Uh, Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Interesting sentence. So Jesus said to them, notice Christ's response. He's revealing his authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. I say to you. Why? I am God's son, and when I speak, I speak for God, and what I'm telling you is the truth. He not only said this is truth once, but he said it twice, meaning pay attention. It's a double amen, amen. So you better take note of what I'm about to say, because what I'm saying to you and to us today is truth, all right? Notice what he says, the son can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, whoever he wants, anytime he wants. Is that what it says? Come on, church. You guys are too stiff. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? I can do what? Come on. I can do what? One more time. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got to be louder than that. The old guy can't hear. I can do what? Nothing. It's an old song. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Something like that. Any of you old enough to know that song? Nothing means what? Nothing. Jesus. Okay. Called God his father and made himself equal with God is saying that he can do nothing of his own will. Anytime, anyone, to anything he wants, he doesn't go around doing whatever he wants to do. He joins God in what God is doing. He doesn't interject himself 
or impose himself on the will of God. He steps into the will of God and does what the Father wills to do. I wish you could say that all all the time about me. How about you? He realizes his dependency. I am doing exactly what the Father wants done. But notice he restricts his activity. He says, but only what he sees the Father doing. If he doesn't see God at work, he doesn't work. He just walks away. Christ walked around the streets of Jerusalem and the highways and byways of Israel, and he was actively, attentively watching and waiting and, and looking for God to work. And when he, when he saw God at work, he stepped into God's activity and joined God in what God was doing. That's how he lived. And then he says, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Notice he recognizes the God's sovereignty by whatever the Father does. You know, God can do whatever God wants to do whenever he wants to do it to whoever he wants, anytime he wants, without your permission. I know you've got elders here, but they're not in the boardroom when God sits down to exercise his will. He doesn't ask your permission or my permission or our permission to vote on anything. When we vote, we're simply agreeing with God that this is your will. Because we're seeking God's will and we're seeking his direction. We're not implementing our own. We don't go to a boardroom and say, hey, well, God, well, what about this? And what about that? And how about this direction? How about that direction? God says, no, I am sovereign. I am God. I am sitting and reigning and ruling my throne. And this is the way. Yes, sir. Because he can do whatever he wants. Why? Because he's God. He can do whatever he wants in your life that he wants. Why? Because he's God. You can fuss and scream and cry and be upset and fuss at him and get mad at him all you want, but he is still God. So he can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, to whoever he wants, without your permission and without your input. You know, it strikes me as I think about this, and I thought about it this morning, how much of my praying is telling God what he needs to do? Anybody join me in that? God, I want to prescribe to you the solution to what needs to happen here so that I can get release and relief from this circumstance right now because I'm not happy with this. And yet God says, ha, 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 it's not time yet. Can you imagine 38 years in that condition and no telling how long that man was at the pool wanting God to do what only God could do? He couldn't do it himself. And yet it took 38 years for Christ in that moment enter into his life to bring about the moment of his miracle and then that his son does likewise he reflects the father's activity he does exactly what the father does he does as the same he is like his father likewise and so we should be likewise too. Christ even when he was praying just before his arrest and his crucifixion his death when he was up in the garden what did he pray father not my will but your will be done. Not one time did God, I mean, did Jesus interject his agenda, impose his will, or do something that wasn't within agreement of the Father's will because he was abandoned to the Father's will. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. How often do we need to pray that? 
Then lastly, he was attentive, he was available, he was abandoned. Here's the fourth A. He was assured that God is going to do a great activity. Assured of the Father's activity. Notice verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. What brought assurance to Christ that God was still at work? Notice, the Father loves the Son. He knew that God was going to show him and that God was going to use him because he knew that the Father loved him. And he knew that in his Father's will, because of his love for his Son, no matter what God willed, it would be great, it would be okay, because he was loved by his Father. We should be more like that. Because too often when we start griping and complaining or upset or, uh, or, or a little bit about what God is doing, we forget that maybe we're going through this because God loves us. And this is good for us. So whenever God does whatever he wants in your life, and it's a hard, and brings a little bit of discomfort, don't question his love for you. He loves you. And that's why he's allowing that or bringing that into your life is because it is out of love. Because even out of love, the Father often disciplines those that he loves. I don't know about you, but I never liked discipline. Do you? So not only does the father, he was clear about his father's relationship, but also he was confident. Notice that the God would show him some of what he was doing. Is that what he said? All that he himself was doing. All. You know, we have a hard time with the all because I think sometimes we want the all today. The fact of the matter is that, that, that we don't like to wait on understanding and perspective. You guys have been waiting a long time for a place to land. Why has God done this? Why has God put you through this? I'm sure you've asked him that several times. Right, Andrew? <laughs> Why has God done this? Because he loves you. And this is the path and this is the journey that is best for you to take you to where he wants you to go. And it's out of his love that he is eventually, eventually going to show you all that he himself is doing. But notice, I, I saw that this morning. I got up pretty early this morning and looked at some words. The word himself stood out this morning. I, you know, you read a passage a hundred times and something all of a sudden just jumps out at you. It says that he himself is doing. That told me he or himself is a is a, I got to look at my, is a third person word. It references the one that is being addressed. So, what Jesus is saying through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is God Himself that's doing it. God Himself is doing it. You know, we could spend 45 minutes on just that. But it's God operating in and through us. So he himself is doing it as we step into the activity of God. It is not us doing it, but it is us stepping into that activity as he himself is doing it in us and through us. But notice he says also, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. 
He's convinced. Notice, and greater works than these will he show him. Greater in magnitude, greater in scope, greater in perspective. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you think the healing at the pool of Bethesda was a miracle? You ain't seen nothing yet. And there are passages after this in John 5 and further that talk about miraculous healings and raising of the dead and the judgment and all kinds of things that are happening. That is not the greatest activity yet. There are greater works that are coming than the ones that you have just witnessed. I don't know how God has been working in your life, but I'm convinced greater works are still coming. It sounds a little bit, I'm going to call it Bapticostal. Okay? Uh, it's a Pentecost with sound theology. All right? I think sometimes we Baptists again put him in a box and we define God by these certain things, and God sometimes says, No, I'm going to bust through that. I, I think God has great work still for this church for years to come. I mean, think about all he's done in how many years? How many years is it? Let me tell me. Ten? Ten years. Has it been a good work? Come on, has it been a good work? One more time, has it been a good work? Okay, you wouldn't be here if it hadn't been a good work. But I'm here to tell you today that you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm not prophetic, but I know Jesus is expecting greater work. And the great work that God is going to do in you is the same work that he's going to do through Christ. What was the purpose? He was certain that God was going to do great work. What? So that you may, what? So that you may, what's the word? Marvel. So that you may marvel. Who's the you? The unbelievers, the doubters, the haters, the persecutors. The ones who said, you're not who you are or who you claim to be. We don't believe it. We don't receive it. We reject it. We want to kill you. We want to destroy you. We want to eliminate you. And Jesus says to those, even in their accusation, God is going to do a work so great that you, who unbelieve, are going to marvel. In other words, you're going to say, wow, that could have only been done because God did it. So I want to remind you, Christ Redeemer, that when you Get to the place where God is taking you. And somebody asks you, Andrew, to write a book. How did you get here? Tell us how you did it. Come be our keynote speaker. Give us all the skinny. Give us five points of what we need to do to emulate what God has done there. All you're going to be able to do is get up and say, God did it. Close the book and sit down. Because eventually what God is going to do in you and through you will be so great that it will cause your community to stand up and take notice of the activity of God. I want to close with this interesting story about Matt, our oldest, who most of you know, uh, in our first church in Haslett, Texas. Anybody know where that is? Haslett, Texas? Got one, two, north of Fort Worth. It was a small town 40 years ago. Is that 40 years ago? Probably 40 years ago. And Matt was probably three or four. And... Um, we lived in a parsonage. A parsonage is a, church, is a house that the church owns that let the pastor live in it. And they paid all our bills. It was the kind of house that was a shotgun house. 
it was, it was not a luxurious, luxurious house. When the wind blew, the curtains moved, okay? It was one of those houses. And uh, it had Coleman lanterns in the, in the rooms that we had to light with a match and all that. So anyway, it was not a, but it was a palace to us because we were poor seminary students. And so it was free rent. I mean, there was nothing. We didn't pay for anything. And I got to preach on Sunday and pastor this incredible church. And it was a shotgun house. And in the back of the house was a, was a door that went down in the backyard and through the gate. And then to the left, I could go into the educational building to the left. And on one day during the week, on those miraculous winter mornings, it snowed several inches in Texas. Now, it's hard to call in to the office and say, I can't make it into the office today because of the snow when you live next door to the church. So I decided I would go to the church because we had two small kids. It's the best place to study. So I went out that back door. I went down the back and out the gate, took a left, went to the door and opened it and I turned around and to my surprise I saw Matt in his pajamas in his house shoes carefully trying to step in the snow where his father had stepped and the application was instant father be careful where you step because you have children who are following in your footprints it's a great application if you're a dad today don't ever forget it But a second application also stuck in my mind, that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has left footprints for me to follow. And if I carefully step where he stepped, I can live like he lived and enjoy the relationship and the blessing that my Savior enjoyed. If I'm attentive to the activity of the Father, if I am available to the activity of the Father, if I am abandoned my will to his will and embrace his activity, I can anticipate God working greater things in my life, in your life, in our life together. One day, you were by a pool called sin. You couldn't save yourself. Christ came by. He found you like he found Philip. And he said, follow me. And at that moment, he gave you the faith to stand from your condition, to redeem your soul, and you are now following him. In this time of celebration through the Lord's Supper, through the communion, let's honor him and celebrate what Christ has done on the cross. For the one who was sinless became sin for us and died in our place, so that by grace through faith, we can be saved. Father, thank you for the joy and the opportunity we've had in this time to be challenged by this passage. And God, I pray that in a moment as we celebrate what you did for us so long ago, may it be fresh in our minds because we were all helpless and hopeless trying to save ourselves but could not. And yet you rescued us and redeemed us, gave us hope, gave us life. We thank you for it. We want to honor you for it in this time of celebrating what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.